Well, Claire, lovely to see you. Thank you for making time on your busy schedule. I mean, your schedule is a joke. It's insane. I always think I'm a busy working mum, but you're just another level. How on earth do you manage it? First, thanks for having me. It's just really exciting to be on your podcast. Um, I think think lots of people have very busy schedules, don't they? And it's just about trying to manage it. And I'm really lucky I have an awful lot of help. I have a great husband who's around a lot. And then obviously I have a lovely nanny to look after our little boy so you know, and, but there is a lot going on at the moment but I'm in a very lucky position I suppose that I can bring Nate to a few races he's here with us this weekend in Barcelona and that's so nice for me um yeah it's, it's just one of those things everybody everybody has it don't they well absolutely I feel and I remember my midwife saying to me that your placenta is replaced by maternal guilt (laughs) that in some way whatever you decide you feel guilty you work too much you work too little you're not a great role model if you don't work but if you do work too much you're neglecting your children I mean it's a constant battle isn't it yeah it is you're right and that that maternal guilt just I think it just escalates whatever you try and do to try and create a balance um, you always feel guilty about something well I certainly do any, anyway like you said when I'm at Williams I feel guilty that I'm not at home and when I'm at home I feel guilty that I've left my other baby in Williams and you know I have a lot of people at Williams that I you know I consider them my family as well and I have a duty to them as much as you know anything else and so it is it is hard um, but I also think that actually you know guilt is just a feeling it's an emotion isn't it and you know as long as you know on a practical level that you're doing everything that you can um, for both for both things that you have a responsibility to or have many things you have a responsibility to you just have to try and slam the door on that guilt because mm. guilt's just a it's a very negative emotion at the end of the day isn't it and we're only human we can only do so much there are only so many hours in every day so guilt's not particularly helpful um certainly not for me I mean you could wrap yourself up in it for you know hours couldn't you worrying about it but there's no point you know I I know when I tried to I think I've tried to get a good balance um and you know I go to bed at night feeling you know a bit guilty but you know, you just got to go through it, and that's just life, I suppose. And then you feel guilty for sleeping because if you weren't sleeping, you could be doing more for either Williams or your or Nate. No, do you know, I never feel guilty about <laughs> sleeping. No, someone told me once that it's more important than exercise sleeping. So, I actually I sleep a lot. It's really important to me. If I don't have a good night's sleep, then I'm in real trouble, and no one gets a good Claire when I haven't had good sleep. <laughs> well, your sense of responsibility and commitment to Williams certainly runs deeper than anyone else's in the paddock because you do have this this legacy and the, the, to uphold and as you say you've grown up with the team um, when does the legacy feel inspiring and when does it feel like a real weight on your shoulders yeah, it's funny um, someone said to me the other day and I've never had it put to me um, like this that people could question my commitment to Williams because I've been in inverted commas born with a silver spoon in my mouth and therefore am I as hungry as say somebody that hasn't had that and the the comparison was to my dad you know my dad um, came from very um, humble beginnings very difficult beginnings they didn't have any money whatsoever my grandmother was um, a single mom raised him um, knew that a good education was what would get him out and you know give him a good platform moving um into the big wide world and you know so that there was that comparison and I was kind of like I don't think it necessarily works like that I think it can be a that's quite stereotypical to say well just because I was born into privilege I recognize the privilege 
that I was born into. Um, and that detracts in no way from how I feel about Williams and how committed I am mm. to this team. This team is my life. You know, I grew up as much as we weren't brought to races because, you know, dad didn't take us because no one else has to take their kids to, to the office. And I respect that. But we weren't, we were around Williams all day long mm. in the sense that when my dad came home from work at the dinner table, when we would all have supper together, that's what we talked about. You know, we went on family holidays, not that dad was ever there, but that was all we talked about. So it is, it's so entrenched in me. Mm. I care about this so much because that's what we all cared about. That's what we were all taught to care about as kids was Williams. And, you know, the team has always fought to survive in our sport for whatever reason, whether that be financially or competitively. So I'm very used to that and I'm very conscious of the need to always, I suppose it's just inherent to me, the need to always make sure Williams is successful. So I have an enormous commitment to this team. I can't see my life without it. You know, I don't know really who I am without Williams. Someone, you know, I was having a conversation with my husband and said, you know, he asked me what what would you do if it all went under or you sold it or whatever. And I said, I have no idea. And he uh, and he said, well, you could go off and you could be a non-exec director for some companies or you could do speaking engagements. So it's like, but that's not me. You know, I am, Formula One is just so my world mm. that I can't imagine my life without it. In some ways, does that make it tricky to be objective and to say, actually, now might be the right time to sell or might be the right time to step down? Have you ever considered that? You know, I I got trashed for this last year in the Netflix show. Um, Unfortunately, what I said was taken somewhat out of context. They didn't Mm. put the... The, the context wrapped or they didn't wrap the context around and you know I, I questioned my position within the team um, but only so much as I'm not arrogant enough to sit there and think they can't do this without me and I have to always be here mm. of course when things are going badly anyone should question themselves themselves it's the right thing to do so of course I went through that process but I I haven't been brought up to give up I'm not, I don't give up, I fight harder when people tell me that I, I can't do things. And, you know, people are very judgy, I've mm. found that in the past 18 months. Um, but they don't know what we're going through, they don't know what I do necessarily, they don't know how hard I fight and I work, and I don't believe that my time to go is now. I don't believe that selling Williams now is the right thing to go. You know, this is sport, sports teams go through difficult times and it's, it's what you do in these difficult times that's the true test of who you are, whether that be as an individual or be as a team, as a sports team. Now is not the right time to, to pack up and go, we're done, we don't like it, we're not doing very well. It's about fighting and it's about all working, us all pulling together and showing the world that we can do this and that we belong in Formula One and our place in Formula One is at the top of the grid, not at the back of the grid. They would never find anyone that cared more, that's for sure, if you did leave. And equally, as you've touched on, I doubt, I doubt you'd find somewhere that you'd be as passionate about. And it's a, it's a difficult place to move from here because you've got to live and breathe it. I mean, as you say, it is part of your DNA. Just to explain to us how that, um, how that worked and how it became part of you over a number of years through your childhood. Just describe your childhood to us. Um, I had a wonderful childhood. I was very lucky in that I was brought up in the world of Formula One. You know, um, I got to go to Williams on weekends when mum wanted a bit of a break from us kids. Dad used to have to pack us off with him on a Saturday and we got to run around Williams. And I never remember really seeing my dad on those days. You know, I was plonked on a secretary's lap or something and I used to 
help type letters and frank the mail. Franking the mail was a big thing of mine, um, but also raiding the stationery cupboard, <laughs> filling my little backpack <laughs> with stationery. I still love our stationery cupboard. It obviously holds happy <laughs> memories for me. Um, you know, I used to we used to zip line across the in the race space to have the, the the big things that come down to lift the car from place to place and. Jonathan and I used to grab those and zip across the ceiling. It was brilliant. And coming to races was just great as well. But, you know, as much as that, we were kids and we did lots of other stuff as well. And, you know, I was very lucky, um, you know, in that sense, um, being a part of that kind of life and knowing that my dad was incredibly successful. But, you know, obviously I went to, I went to boarding school. So in my late teens or mid-teens I suppose I wasn't around it a huge amount I would always scour the wasn't allowed to watch it I was always have to scour the Monday morning papers to see how Williams did when it was a race weekend um, but I never you know certainly we were never brought up by my parents to think that any of us would ever inherit Williams one day that either any of us would ever run it um, and when you know the time came to make your our career choices you know going to university I never um, was had it in my head that I would wanted a career in motorsport. I, it just kind of happened. Mm. Um, it's kind of my whole career has happened quite organically. I've mm. never had a clear ambition to one day run the team. It's just progressively happened over the course of you know the 17 years that I've worked for Williams. Oh, 17 years. Do you know something that struck me um, when I first met you was the fact that you called your dad Frank. Yeah. And for a while I was like, that is Frank's daughter, isn't it? And I remember thinking, what a cool thing it was. A very simple thing, a very simple technique, but it, 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 it brought respect and it made other people, I think, realise that, you know, you weren't daddy's little girl. Yeah. It wasn't pure nepotism. You'd earn your place. Is that, was that a conscious decision? It must have been, obviously. You didn't call him Frank at home. <laughs> no, because I call him, I'm, I spend so much time in the office with dad. I, I, I sometimes do make the mistake of calling him Frank, you know, a private <laughs> time or, at, you know, family gatherings, whatever. And everyone was like, Claire, he's your dad, please. At least call him, you know, dad occasionally. Um, it was a very conscious decision I made very early on in my career at Williams when I first started. It was like, I'm not going to call him dad in the office. It's, you know, I'm, I'm here and I want to do a good job and I don't want people you know thinking about the nepotism thing and if you keep calling your dad dad in the office they are gonna think like that um you know but the nepotism thing was quite a big deal I suppose in the beginning and and, you know it still is now to a degree in in a number of ways um but dad never wanted me to work at Williams you know the first it was our head of marketing that offered me the job originally and he hadn't even asked dad and it took him about three months to persuade Frank to to give me a job and then Frank really thrashed me for the first six months you know really wasn't you know he really put me through my paces putting me on a really long probation period and stuff like that but because I hadn't been around the paddock a lot when I first started coming to races and I wasn't allowed to come to races for a couple of years into the job um Sylvia Hoffer who was our press officer at the time who I effectively worked for trackside had to go around she introduced me to people as you know Claire and people didn't know a lot of people in paddock didn't know for a long time that I was Frank's daughter and Frank never treated me as his daughter when I would have to be there holding the dictaphone for interviews that he did and stuff like that. And that was great for me. But then there is the other side where I am his daughter and people, you know, think, well, she's only in that job because, you know, she's his daughter. My answer to that is that this is a serious world that we live in and there's a lot at stake. And you wouldn't just, I don't believe anyway, you wouldn't just give someone a job because 
of what their surname is. That well, wouldn't be right. Well, exactly. And you'll soon get found out if you do. If you're rubbish at what you do, you yeah. won't last. Yeah. I think it's a lazy claim. I, it happens a lot in Formula One, inevitably, but I'm sure all walks of life as well. What, what lessons um, did Frank, did your mum and dad teach you that you've now used and passed on in your mothering of Nate? Um, oh, parenting lessons yeah. that you're talking about. Oh, wow. Um, parenting lessons. Probably not necessarily from my dad. My dad, I love him to pieces, and he is the best dad in the world now. But he was really busy, you know, when mm. I was growing up. He wasn't around a whole lot. I, you know, I've never been on holiday with my dad. What? Um, no, never. Dad's okay. never been on a family holiday. No, he'd be bored stupid going on a family holiday. My mum never wanted him there because he would be a pain in the ass. Really? <laughs> no. But, 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 what, what, he must have gone on holiday. No. He must be... He must have holidays Frank's never been on a holiday in his life what he's never been to a supermarket stop it no Frank is a very extraordinary individual he is um, he's so consumed by motorsport it's his world it's his life they, they you know my parents didn't go out for dinners with friends and stuff like that very rarely he was just myopically consumed by this world that we live in so it was the other he woke up the other day a few months ago <laughs> saying to one of his nurses I've never seen a tiger and um, they went, all right. So they took him to the zoo so he could see a tiger. And he had the best day. And he sent me a photograph to show me. And I was like, well, hold on. That's not fair. You've never taken me to the zoo. So I need to get myself some of this action. So I, a week later, organized um, for us all to go to the zoo. <laughs> so we all went down to Marwell Zoo. Um, Dad, Nate, me and my husband, Mark. And we had the best day. I mean, it was tipping it down with rain. This was in back in March sometime. Tipping it down with rain, typical British day, freezing cold. So none of the animals were out and about. But then this snow leopard came out when Dad and Nate... So you've got Dad in his wheelchair and Nate in his buggy, and they're so sweet together. And they're sat there waiting to see us like an animal. They've only seen one giraffe in about two hours. And then they go to the snow leopard enclosure. And then the snow leopard just comes out and sits literally next to them both. So we adopted the snow leopard for dad for his birthday from Nate. So that was lovely. But parenting, you know, I think my, I mean, my parents brought us up brilliantly. You know, even around my dad's accident, they shielded us from it. Um, they just, I think, brought us up to respect the world that we've been lucky enough to be born into to appreciate everything that we have and to work really hard and Mm. I suppose that's the greatest lesson that I've learned from both my parents that hard work you must always work hard whatever you do um, and be as best as you can be in whatever you choose to do and um, success will follow thereafter Mm. because hard work deserves some reward doesn't it Um, there must be a sense of sadness as much joy as there is in that zoo visit that your mum wasn't there yeah. I mean that must be hard because I know that when you become a mother the person you want to share it with the most is your own mother yeah. how has that been to sort of navigate for you yeah it's it's been it's been tough obviously mum was such a she was the pivotal part of our family she was the glue that kept us all together and actually being here in Barcelona you know, my mum died six years ago now but this was the last race that she ever came to and obviously that was 2012 when um, Pasta won for us you know everyone I think thought that was a bit of a flute result but I know that the gods were playing a part in that so it's always a bit bittersweet and it was dad's 70th so it's always a bit bittersweet coming here and you know, I actually took on the DTP role. Um, I was offered it just in her kind of dying months, really. 
And so she knew I was going to do it, but she never saw me do it. And I had to literally fly straight to a race to be my, you know, the DTP on my first race weekend um, the day after she died. And so for me, taking on that role, I kind of just ploughed through the grief by ploughing myself into work. Mm. But then becoming a mum, I went through the grief because, you know, you want your mum there and stuff. And, you know, I feel that obviously she misses out on, you know, we were just talking this morning, wasn't it? Nate's out and about in Barcelona Mm. and your mum used to look after your little ones Mm. when they came racing for you when you were working. And I know my mum would have loved that. Mm. She would have loved to come to a race, but be in the city with with Nate showing him around and stuff like that so it is it is sad but I know that she's looking over us and I we created a logo for her when she died of a butterfly coming out of a sun and we raced with that on our race cars now and she was such a big part of this team and she'll never be forgotten oh that's so lovely I've got goosebumps (laughs) well uh, what so what would she make of you being a mum at the DTP this this dual role DTP I love that That sort of dual role that obviously is difficult to balance, but um, what advice do you think she'd be giving you? Well, um, she gave me a bit of advice because she was quite worried me taking on this role because obviously she'd seen Dad running the team and how focused you do have to be and the sacrifices you do have to make. And she just said, you know, I, you need to understand that and I worry for you that you won't, you won't have any fun in your life and I want you to have fun in your life. And um, But... I, I hope that she would be proud and one of the, my greatest sadnesses I suppose that from 2013 when I took it on and that was the year that she died um, then going taking the team to third the, the final of the next year sorry in 2014 um, she never saw that and one of my mum's greatest sadnesses was, was that she died seeing the team in real difficulty um, but I know again she would have been looking down and when we took third in Abu Dhabi Lyndon Swainston who's a lovely lady in the paddock came to me and she said I know that your mum's here and it was I knew I wanted Lyndon to come she's been a close friend and for her to come and say that was just lovely I think she'd probably think now really I, I was nuts <laughs> and what am I doing and you know Williams is not the be all and end all and really go and enjoy your life Claire and enjoy motherhood and make the most of it um, but she equally knows how important this team is for mm. us, and I'd hoped that, you know, as much as I know, people, a lot of people out there think I'm doing a rubbish job. I know that my mum knows how hard it is to do this, and that she would be supportive. I, I really don't actually believe that people think you're doing a rubbish job. I think that F1 is a cyclical sport, as 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 are most sports. I mean, you look at Manchester United, glory years, and then they have a dip in form, and and it, what goes round comes round, and it all it, it does all come back round ultimately. It does, and we know that. I think there are a lot of people, though, you know, particularly in this world of social media, where people just are afforded a platform mm. to comment on things that they don't understand, mm. and that's so dangerous for people. I think I'm quite lucky. I have quite thick skin, mm. but I st- I'm, I'm not on social media. I wish I, I wish I could be, but I find it very dangerous for me because I'll read, you know, ten really great comments, and then I'll read one that's just horrible, and it's so deeply upsetting, and it's very difficult to then focus and get your mind back on what you're doing. So I, I stay well clear of it. But I suppose it's those people that I just, you know, I would love to give them the opportunity to come and walk one day in my shoes, and see what it's like, and then judge me. I think it's wrong to judge people when you don't understand the ins and outs. But I think that's probably the ambitious and 
perfectionist side of your character that you will focus on the one negative comment and not the ten good ones. And, and that's what drives you, and that's presumably why you will, not if, but when, you will come out of this slump. Um, uh, can you put any kind of timeline on it? Do you have any light at the end of the tunnel that you can say, this is what we're gearing towards? Because I know talking up and down the paddock, say at Renault, for example, they're not having a great season, but talking to Daniel and Nico, they both say, look, we can see X, Y and Z happening. So at least maybe in a year's time, once we've weathered this storm, we'll get through it. Do you, do you feel the same? I, I have to say first that I would swap my season this year, our season this year with Renault's in a heartbeat. Mm. Um, you know, when we, we, we thought when we'd slipped from third to fifth in um, 16 and then 17, you know, I thought that was really bad. And that was difficult, and I've never known anything like this. But I know that there's light. I wouldn't keep keep going if if I didn't. And I know that everybody in the team believes that as well. You know, we've we've made mistakes. We've held our hands up to those, and it it is about what we do now to get us out of this. And you know, I hope that people would understand and expect that we have a plan. We're not just as, as I said before, hoping for a miracle that suddenly we'll find something extraordinary. It's not about suddenly you find a eureka moment. That doesn't happen in Formula One anymore. It's about going through the process and looking at everything that you have at your disposal to create a great racing car and then structuring that in the right way and getting your processes right, making sure you've got the right talent in your organisation. If you don't, bring it in. But if you, you probably have got it, it may be just not be organised in the right way. And obviously we've had a terrible start to the year. But I know that there are some lights shining through and I can see that. And even here this weekend, you know, we've closed that gap a little to P9. And really, at the end of this year, if we can deliver a second, two seconds, that probably still won't take us into the midfield yet um, because everyone else is going to improve. But we will at least demonstrate that we've made improvements and we're on our journey and we're on that path, which was difficult to see earlier in this year, particularly after all our dramas around um, testing, etc. So I do see, I do see light. And I'm, I'm always a glass half full. I believe in my people. I believe in this team. I believe in the spirit of it and the, the fight that we have and that we're, we're, we've just got to be given a bit of time to work through all of the changes that we're trying to make at the moment because it does take time to reorganise any business. If you were talking to somebody who knew nothing at all about Formula One and to explain, because they would say, well, how on earth have you gone from there to there? I know there probably wasn't one single event that you can pin it on, but there must have been a sequence of events. In that process of understanding, have you been able to pick those out? Yeah, we have. And I think that's clearly the first step, isn't it, to change when you have to go through that process of understanding where you made your mistakes. I think it all started in... Well, I think think there are two levels to it. I think there's been um, decline creep for a while, Um, for whatever reason uh, across the team and then I think that in 17 there was significant change made on the engineering side that really had quite a negative impact I think we wanted to do something quite um, revolutionary and aggressive and we got it wrong and it takes a while to claw that back and it's very difficult once you've got your car for the year to make sweeping changes um, obviously aero is a big thing for us at the moment we um, bought in a new head of aero last year but someone that couldn't have an impact on last year's car and has really changed totally the philosophy that we have um, when it comes to our aerodynamics and that takes time to re-educate 
all the aerodynamicists that have been working against a different philosophy for so long. Um, they all, they all say, you know, if we had another six months and then not having had these technical regulation changes over the winter as well around the front wing, which is kind of ironic considering we were the ones that lobbied for them. We haven't made made up the downforce that we lost yet. So we're working through that, you know, the cooling problems that came about through a very aggressive cooling package that we put on the car last year haven't helped. Still trying to iron out those. And then we've got some mechanical issues as well that really we should be getting right. Things around our brakes, our steering system, that kind of stuff that the guys are working really hard but again not the work of a moment and we don't have infinite resource to be able to just throw money at the problem in from every direction you know i think if we had mercedes budget we would have got ourselves out of this a whole lot quicker that's not to say that we don't have a strong and healthy budget we do um but it takes it does take time and you know we make all of our race cars something that we're very proud of um, and something that probably caused us to miss our deadline date for testing um, because we make 22,500 parts ourselves um, and we don't have, we haven't necessarily had the planning and planning infrastructure that we needed to make sure that we got that process right. So there's a lot at work that causes you to get to this point that causes such a crashing decline. And so there's really every area of our business that we're looking at and analysing and understanding and then changing. Consuming so much of your headspace, I'm sure. I mean, it must be so hard to switch off from that. Do you, um, I guess, in your position, it would be a difficult one whether to remain loyal to people that have worked for you or whether to make sweeping changes in personnel. That must be one of the biggest headaches. Um, it is. You've always got to look at... Um, you know the resource that you have the people you have you know they're the people that are are making your car for you um and it's my job to make sure that we have the right people and i believe that we do i believe that we have great people at williams i think that maybe we haven't done a good enough job giving them the resources that they need to do the job we're asking them to do sometimes they may not be um in the right roles or structured in the right way um we've got a lot of really great young talent that are coming up through the ranks and i'm really excited to see um, how they can help get us out of the situation that we're in at the moment, and I don't. So I don't necessarily think it's, you know, making great sweeping personnel changes isn't the right thing to do. Because what do you do? You sack your whole team, and you know, mm. then what do you do? You've got no one to do your car, and that's not what's needed here. It's about us, you know, at a board level, as an executive committee, making sure that those people are in the right jobs with the right tools to do those jobs. So again, another process that we're going through at the moment. And, and what about your drivers? Because there's, obviously we know what George Russell's capable of because he won the F2 title so recently. And we know what Robert was capable of before his accident. There seems a sense of injustice that he's come back. He's made this incredible comeback story to F1, but he hasn't been able to show whether he can and should be competing at this level because of the car do you think it's right that he is racing in f1 i think first i mean for me the drivers they put a smile on my face and um you know i just i love them both i think we're so lucky and i'm so pleased that we took that decision last year to make changes um you know george he's just you know he's gorgeous george he's lovely you know he's always got a smile on his face and it must be so tough for him at the moment his rookie year he knew what he was coming into we were very honest with both of them where we were going to be this year but it still must be really hard work and george mm. could he just he just wants to show what he can do and as does robert and i 
you know, I firmly believe anyway that Robert has what it takes. I think he's, you know, as much as George is out qualifying to him at every race this year, you know, they're pretty close on the racetrack. You know, I don't think, certainly don't think that Robert's injury holds him back in any way, shape or form. You know, for me, one of the biggest um, reasons why I wanted Robert in the car for us this year was he pushes, you know, he really tells those engineers what's what and what he wants. And we need to hear that. Um, so we have two very vocal drivers who both understand what's going on with the car and um, don't hold back telling people what's going on wrong and what, what they need. And you know, at the end of the day, what we do here is the most important thing for anybody. Um, so, yeah, for me, they, I, just, I couldn't be happier with them. And I think that all we need to do clearly is to give them the machinery with which they can prove their performance. And, you know, and I know that that will be where we want it to be. I can see why Robert would be very good with communicating um, the data with the engineers. It's interesting when I see the F2 guys because I spoke to Alex Albon yesterday and he was going, one of my biggest things was having the confidence to talk to the engineers and really say how I felt. And actually that communication's everything because that's what ultimately saves your season, isn't it? Um, how impressed have you been with George's sort of development and, and coming in as a rookie and, and, and building the trust and that relationship? I think clearly George, over the course of his life, from whoever it's come from, he's had some amazing advice and some great mentors. I think his parents have played a huge role in that. Steve and Alison are just wonderful people. And um, Gwen Legrew, who is the Mercedes driver manager, has obviously supported George through the past seven or so years of his career. And I think that's led to what we have now in George, and that's somebody that um, can communicate so well. I think we all sometimes forget that George is only 21. Steve was telling me the other day that, you know, he's the way that he's grown up, he's grown up around karting tracks because his older brother was a karting champion and so he was taken to all the races and hung out with much older people, I suppose. His best friend when he was six was a guy called Barry who was 65, you know, <laughs> which is lovely. And I think George just has a level of maturity beyond mm. his, his years that has made him so wise and his communication, it was very funny when he first got into the car because he would come on the road and go, Roger! And because he's got quite um, a, a forthright British accent you know it's just it's so lovely to hear him talk because he is so eloquent you know the guy comes to the factory between races armed with powerpoint I keep going on about George and his powerpoint presentations but I've never known a driver to create a powerpoint after a race that he then color codes on in priority levels you know with the traffic light red amber and green system that he then presents to the engineers what he wants and what he needs and what's going wrong or what's going right with the car and so to have that in a driver and particularly one that is as young as George and you know is in his rookie year in Formula One it's it's fantastic for us and both of them do a great job ensuring that they spend time with their mechanics and the guys in the garage and their engineers so that everyone is really bought into them and wants to just work that little bit harder for them. Is there a natural leader out of the two? No, there isn't. Um, But they do get on really well. And you might think, because they both have strong personalities, that one would naturally step into a leadership role, but they don't. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of elbows out, certainly not at the moment anyway. I think they both just... They knew the, what I, like I said, they knew what they were getting into and they both clearly just want to make sure that they play their part in helping Williams get back to the front of the grid. Has George got what it takes to go all the way and become a world champion? I'm convinced that George is a future world champion, 100% convinced. Clearly I hope that that's with us. Um, but yeah, he's just got, there's something special about George. Okay, back to you. Something special about you. There, I mean, listen, 
I have to say that wherever you go in the world, and you must know this, because I know you've had a bit of a hammering social media and whatever, although hopefully you haven't seen any of it, but wherever you go in the world, people support Williams. If it's not their number one team, it's certainly their second team. There's, no one ever says anything about Willi- bad about Williams. So what message do you have for the fans? And what, uh, how can we kind of end this podcast on a high? I, I do find it ex- extraordinary I suppose but then I don't that people do love Williams and I think that's all come about because of what Frank and Patrick managed to achieve with this team which is an extraordinary success story not just in motorsport but any British any any global sport isn't it coming from nothing and taking the team to 16 world championships is extraordinary um and I think clearly people fell in love with the team during those glory years of ours and they've always continue to support us and it's so lovely to see that I don't necessarily know why maybe it's because I'd like to think that we're quite humble and we just we're here because we love what we do and we go about our business in an honest way um, I think people love an underdog story as well don't they they like um, supporting the guys that just keep scrapping I sometimes feel like we're a bit like Scooby-Doo or Scrappy-Doo that little dog <laughs> that just won't give up um, so I, I love our fans. I'm so pleased that we have so much support. I was, I, I suppose, a little bit surprised. We received so many letters, emails of support after testing and this year. that I, I, was, I thought we'd get you know, hate mail. And all we got was just wonderful people taking the time to write to us. It kind of makes me a bit emotional that people actually take the trouble to write a supportive message and I try and read as many as I can to staff or you put them on canteen notice boards and stuff so people can see how much love there is out there because it is such a morale boost it kind of you know when you do struggle to get up sometimes in the morning and to fight another day knowing that you've got so many people wanting you to see well and wishing you well that's got to count for something um and you know even counts to I think a bit of performance as well because we do have that support so I'm enormously grateful I don't take it for granted people now I'm literally getting an email every day from management consultants and people that do certain things offering to lend their services free of charge to help us get out of this situation that we're in we we had a van driver who um, drives around the country delivering stuff, saying, you know, if you need me to come down with my van to take parts to Barcelona for you, I'm happy to do it. I'd love to do it. You know, it's amazing what people will do for for our team, and it does it. It melts my heart. Claire, thank you so much for your time. And listen, all the best from the bottom of my heart for everything that you do. I mean, I think you're a wonder woman. Keep it up. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you, Natalie. Thanks for having me.